The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, good morning. I'm Ab, and this is Jenny. Usually ladies first, but I, uh, we drew straws and I got the short end. But good morning, everybody. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So everyone has a unique story to tell about their walk with Jesus. This is just like the fact that each of us have uniquely been created by God, and he's given us our own unique combination of physical attributes, mental abilities, and spiritual gifts, and also our own specific complement of DNA sequences. So in Romans 12, We're told we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So it's a blessing for me to share with you this morning, even though briefly, my walk with Jesus. I live with Jenny, and we have been married for uh, almost 49 years, mostly blissful, but fully blessed. We have five wonderful, accomplished children, 14 and 14 beautiful grandchildren. We both are retired from our day jobs, so I I could ask you, who can ask for anything more? Well, I asked myself that very question about 40 years ago, when I was 31, Uh, and by outward appearances, it seemed that I had everything you could ask for. A wonderful wife, great children, our health, a well-paying job, a dog, and our own mortgaged home. Despite my apparent comfortable situation, I sensed that something was missing. Although I was brought up in a Christian home and attended church regularly, in quotation, I was actually ignorant about spiritual growth. But unconsciously, I had been resisting for many years the need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. We lived in Saskatoon from 79 to 83 and belonged to a church that encourages members to grow closer to God. Jenny got involved with her prayer and praise meetings at our church on Tuesday evenings and I offered to look after the children. After several weeks, I noticed a change in Jenny. She became just so full of the joy of the Lord. I was jealous of the changes that I saw in Jenny and I was encouraged and reluctantly attended the prayer meetings with Jenny, and just to better understand the experience and what was really happening. I saw others talking about their walk with Jesus, the working of the Holy Spirit, and others praying for each other and for us and our families. There was love, praise, and adoration of Jesus that I'd never experienced before. And one evening at home, I finally decided I'm going to take the chance and asked Jesus into my life um, because of uh, the, the need for that Holy Spirit. Uh, there was love and praise and adoration uh, I had never experienced before. And so during that prayer, I asked the Lord to come into my life. I asked for forgiveness for my sinful nature, and I prayed that if I needed a loving personal relationship with Him then I would welcome him to come into my life and allow him to change me. Within a few moments, I felt an overwhelming sense of love, warmth, comfort, and assurance, something I hadn't experienced before. I knew this was the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It was a very different feeling, but it was not entirely foreign. I recall clearly once previously a very similar sense of comfort and assurance, at the age of 15, when my mother had passed away. On that night, my mind was full of fear and uncertainty of the future. And then that same comforting, peaceful sense filled my whole being. What began with sadness and tears and fears and sorrow changed to a comfort of feeling and peace. In the early days, I didn't know where that feeling had come from, but I felt some of the guilt for feeling so loved and assured that things would work out for me at a time of such turmoil. Well, when that feeling was experienced a second time, I recognized those experiences were the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Peter did say in Acts 2 that repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. After this experience, uh, some people call it being born again, um, many of my views and attitudes, priorities changed. I learned that I needed to pray in all situations, whether big or small. And Paul reminds us in Philippians 6, 4, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Jesus has shown his faithfulness and love to me countless times in my life. And for the sake of brevity, I will recount two uh, vignettes where Jesus answered prayer and instructed me on very specific actions to take in particular situations. These lessons taught me about the reality of God and the absolute importance of prayer. I was also taught that prayer is not a one-way conversation. If you listen with faith and expectation, the Lord will speak to you. One cold February evening before uh, our two oldest boys were to have a special cowboy hot dog day in their school in Saskatoon, Jenny instructed me to go to Woolworths and pick up two cowboy hats for the boys for the event of the next day. So the boys were pumped and confident that I'd bring back those straw cowboy hats to them. Well, there were no cowboy hats at Woolworths, nor were there any cowboy hats in three other stores that I visited that evening. In fact, Jenny Luddy told me that she had seen the straw hats at Woolworths last summer. At one of the stores, the clerk told me mockingly, well, dear, you'll not find any straw cowboy hats in Saskatoon anywhere in February. Well, discouraged, I drove, drove back after an apparent unsuccessful hunt. It was then that I remembered to pray, Lord, please give me the right words to comfort my boys in their depart disappointment. Immediately, the, the Lord spoke to me with the words, go to McLeod's. I was stunned, but I obediently turned and drove to McLeod's, a store that I'd never visited before since it had recently, recently converted from Gamble's to McLeod's. I became incredibly excited and confident that the Lord was directing me there. As I entered the store, I immediately went to the children's clothing section and I began praising Jesus. I turned into the last aisle at the far end of the store. On the left side, there were over 200 children's straw cowboy, ha cowboy hats. I was elated and just enthralled by it all. and I couldn't believe that the Lord had actually done that. I don't think my feet touched the ground after I grabbed those two hats and headed for the cashier checkout. The lessons learned, one, listen to God. Two, he knows the way. Three, put Jesus first. And four, always pray first. Don't waste, wait until it's the last resort. So in Thessalonians 1, we're told to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. The second encounter with prayer and the Holy Spirit involved a situation in a hospital. I was a staff person on call for pediatrics in this, uh, with the high-risk deliveries of and that evening there were triplets that were, the woman was in labor at 19 to 20 weeks gestation. Newborns don't survive born that early. As it happened, I'd met that couple several months earlier professionally for an assessment of their fertility issues. I arrived in the case room and was told that the woman was in active labor and measures to stop the labor had failed. The first of the triplets was delivered and after my arrival, it appeared very uh, premature and unfortunately did not survive. I returned to the delivery room and the obstetrician, Charlie, was concerned that the two, uh, excuse me, that the two others were soon to be born. The obstetrician wanted to deliver the second one since there's a high risk of infection to the mother once delivery and one of the uh, triplets was delivered. I prayed that Jesus would stop the labor and save the pregnancy. As Charlie was about to rupture the membranes of the second triplet, 
the Lord spoke through me with the words, Charlie, drop it. He had taken forceps and was ready to rupture the membranes. He immediately dropped the forceps on the tray. The contraction slowed and eventually the labor stopped. Several weeks later, I happened to meet with Charlie in the hospital and I asked him about that woman with the triplets. He informed me that the second baby had died in utero just the day before at 36 weeks in the pregnancy. That very afternoon, he arranged to do a cesarean section to deliver the third of triplets. Delivery happened, resulting in a healthy baby girl. Today, I know in my heart that somewhere, perhaps still in Saskatchewan, that child is now a woman, about 40 years of age, living and thriving. I wonder how the Lord has used this very special child. I also wonder if she knows that her life was saved through God's mercy and his direct intervention that night, many years ago, in the Saskatoon Hospital. Well, I've been blessed by innumerable and incredible experiences with the Lord in my life. If my experience and my testimony, even today, can convince even one person to overcome their fear or reluctance to take a chance on the Lord and ask Jesus into their lives, then this will bring great joy and glory to our Lord, Jesus. Jesus never fails us. In closing, I will leave you with one of my favorite Bible passages from Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. I say this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a child, I attended church with my family and had a faith in Jesus as the Son of God who had paid the price for my sin on the cross. I did not have a deep understanding and it did not affect the way I lived my life. I had heard what Jesus said in Matthew. Verily I say unto you, unless you be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I thought, hey, I'm a child. I'll go to heaven. I lived with that assurance of heaven and was quite secure. When I was 12, I attended confirmation class. Mrs. Shepherd opened her remarks with, you are no longer children. I didn't hear another word she said the whole class. My assurance had been tossed out the window and I began a search for the assurance of the faith I had in Jesus. Ab and I attended church in the various places we lived as he did his training. And in Saskatoon, on an Ash Wednesday, Ab and I, Ab had taken the bus to work and left me the car so that I could pick up the income tax receipt from the church. We had not attended often because our children were very active and I'm sure the other parents must have drugged their children. <laughs> the people at the church asked me to join them for the service and against my wishes, I stayed. After receiving communion, the minister prayed a simple prayer for me. Jenny, I pray you keep your eyes on Jesus. A peace which passes understanding came over me and I felt like I was floating as I went back to my seat. The next morning, the joy was still present. I felt like the Lord had jumped inside of me and I was on fire for him. I had a desire to read the Bible, to understand what it was saying to me. I loved the new relationship I had with Jesus. I went to prayer meetings with others. There was teaching on milk and solid food of the Word of God, and that interested me, so I asked the Lord to give me solid food. Ab joined the praise band at the church and was enjoying that ministry. 
I was jealous of his public role. One day, a friend who co commented to me after church, praise the Lord for Ab and his guitar. And I said, yes, with my mouth. But my heart said, oh, Thelma, how could you? That night, as I took time with the Lord, he gave me a scripture verse from Corinthians. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not acting like mere humans? I yelled, how did you know? Jesus told me to talk about my jealousy with Ab. You know what? Ab told me there were things I could do that he admired too, and we were able to share. Our Father in Heaven is a relationship counselor extraordinaire. Coming back from my brother's funeral, it was a tragic death. He had killed himself. I was empty and lost. Our young nine-year-old son was home, and I was sitting in the living room chair, staring ahead with empty eyes. I told the Lord that I was empty of faith and had nothing in my heart. The Holy Spirit brought to my memory a teaching. When you get to the end of your faith, give God permission to work. So, I said, Lord, I give you permission to work. And then I added, and I'll not fake it. I do not know how long I sat there empty. Our son came up to me and gave me a little cardboard plaque he had made from Psalm 94. I was very worried, but you comforted me and made me happy. I looked at it and took it in my hands. A short time later, my son returned with another cardboard plaque and another Bible verse. The Lord is good, giving protection in times of trouble. He knows who trusts in him. That's from Nahum. There was a spark of hope which ignited my faith in my heart, and I was able to get up and function as a mom. I still had to grieve. However, I no longer was empty of faith in my heart to carry on and seek the Lord, believing he could get me through it. I had a fear of medical doctors. One day, Ab told me that if something was bothering me, it could be fixed surgically. That threw me into a tailspin. I woke up in the night and sat in my living room and began to bargain with the Lord to just touch me and heal me. No surgery, please. I first tried promising to do so much for him in the church, in the world, anything he wanted. Two hours, no answer, and I went to bed. The next night, I decided to flatter the Lord. And I began telling him how great he is. And I loaded on my best scripture verses. Two more hours and no answer, and I went to bed. The third night, I was angry. And I began to rail at the Lord. And I ended up by growling, and you call yourself God. Immediately, I saw a vision of the Lord on the cross. And Jesus was looking down at me with such love. In horror, I knew what a great loss it would be to have Jesus do it my way by coming down off the cross to satisfy my selfish request. I covered my face and moaned, you must hate me now. 
and his gentle voice said, no, I love you. I replied, that's your problem, Lord. You just don't know when to hate people. The Lord fills me with compassion for others who are hurting and upset with God. I lift them up and ask him to mend their hearts. He's teaching me to love the sinner by filling me with compassion for the person when I'm likely to judge. It's work in progress. When one of our children was going through a difficult learning experience, I asked the Lord, what did I do wrong to have this happen? True to his forthright ways, the Lord replied, you're asking the wrong question. Taken aback, I asked, so what question should I ask? And the Lord said to me, for such a time as this, I chose you to be the mother. What is it I want you to do? Then go and do it. I stopped pitying myself and asked the Lord for direction, and I got on with being the mom the Lord chose to parent in that situation. I have often shared this story with other parents going through tough times. I had difficulty with tithing and went to the Lord to have a discussion. Lord, the church doesn't need your money. You provide everything for them. You don't need my money. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. And the Lord answered, you're right. The church doesn't need your money. I do not need your money. You need to be separated from a portion of your money. That's when the penny dropped and my attitude on tithing changed. When our fifth child was sleeping as a baby and the older children were out playing at friends' homes, I laid down to rest. I had a friend who needed a lot of prayer, and as I felt the relief of the pillow on my head, I prayed that my friend wouldn't call while I rested. And the Lord spoke to me. Whose well do you dip into when you minister to others, Jenny? Your well? Because I can understand why it would be empty then. If you reach into my well, it will never be empty for ministry. A few minutes later, my friend phoned for prayer and apologized for phoning again. I was able, by the grace and timing of God's lesson, to cheerfully reply, the Lord's well is never empty for prayer. My heavenly Father has given me back my assurance of salvation in Jesus, and the Lord continues to grow me up in understanding. Good morning. This morning's scripture will be coming from 1 Corinthians 13 and Romans chapter 12. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and knowledge. And if I have faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, 
I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And now from Romans 12, verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing the word with us today. And uh, thank you for Julia and the team leading us in worship. And Ab and Jenny, thank you so much for your stories and your testimony of faith and uh, how we have already enjoyed rich time in God's presence today, this morning. And we're grateful for that. And um, we uh, continue in Romans chapter 12. And I know that several of you were on Zoom and uh, on, on Wednesday night as Doug led various groups through the first uh, session by Chip Ingram called True Spirituality, How to Become a Romans 12 Christian. And uh, we just encourage you to join into that. You can still fill out the registration. You can phone the office. You can, you can uh, join in and uh, study along, whether it's in a in a family group, a group group of friends, in a life group, or just online with us and so on. And we look forward to more of that. So let me pray for us before I begin the message. Well, Father, our God, we just thank you that uh, we can pause now to invite you, the living God that listens to our prayer. And we can invite you into this, this next little while while we open up your word and we can ask you, Holy Spirit, to do the things you need to do with us. We want to give you permission. We want to invite you. We want to say yes to you, Lord. Yes to whatever it is that you want to put your finger on. Lord, uh, may we not be resistant. May we not be dull of hearing. May we not be hard-hearted. Lord, may we receive whatever it is that you want to teach and follow through to put it into practice the way that only your power and grace can enable us to do when our wells run dry. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen Olford tells a story in one of his books about two swans and a bullfrog. And... Um, they are living in a beautiful pond, and uh, the frog asked the two swans one day if they had ever seen the beauty of what is beneath the surface of the water, and they said, no, we have never done that, and he said, well, follow me, and so the bullfrog dove under the water, and the two swans also followed and, and dove under, and of course, as you might imagine, after a little time, they had to surface to get air, these two swans, and when they came up for air, the bullfrog came up as well, and they said to him, have you ever seen the countryside? And he said, no, I've never seen the countryside. 
He said, but if you will get a stick and hold it in your beaks, I will hold on with my mouth, and you can show me all over the countryside. And so they said, sure, we'll do that. And so the two swans got a stick, and they held it in their beaks, and the frog grabbed on with his mouth, and they flew all over hill and dale, showing the meadows and the forests. And at one point when they're flying over top of a village, two men looked up and saw this spectacle, two swans and a frog flying in the air. And they said, one said to the other, whose idea was that? And the bullfrog said, mine! And he fell to his death. (laughs) And we think of the Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23. Pride comes before the fall. Indeed. In Romans 12, we are learning how God says the, the transformed life is to look. He, we are learning how it is that the Holy Spirit, when he, when he really enters in and begins to clean out the closets and get into the nooks and crannies of our lives, that it, lives, it, it, it starts to look not like a conformed life to the world and its ways. It starts to look like a transformed life that God is now working in. And he'll look into every area. And of course, if we are going to be used by God to be channels of that grace that God wants to give by his Holy Spirit in us, then we will have to be humble people. We will have to be teachable people. We will have to recognize that if we're going to use the gifting that he's given us to be channels of grace to other people, we're going to have to be humble. If we're going to relate to the other members in the body of Christ, our friends and family and so on, we're going to have to be humble people. Indeed, humility is the mother of all virtue, even as pride is the father of all vice. And so it should not surprise us that after Paul has just talked about the body of Christ and how the body fits together and how the different members of the body work together, it is not a surprise that he would then enter into the subject of love. Not any kind of love, but agape love, the love of God. And uh, Paul's never very far away from that subject of love. Naturally, the passage that comes to mind when we think about that is 1 Corinthians 13, which Steve read to us this morning, that incredible love chapter, the chapter that reminds us of what God is looking for in every one of our lives. But the interesting, for me, most interesting thing about chapter 13 of Corinthians is that it's sandwiched between chapters 12 and 14. Because in chapters 12 and 14, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, the charismata, literally gifts of grace. And in the middle of it all, uh, Paul says at the end of chapter 12, earnestly desire the higher gifts, but I'll show you a more excellent way. And he launches into his treaty on love. He says, as a veteran missionary pastor, he cautions the church about using any gifting that's not going to be used with love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, there's a gift. The tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, there's another gift. And understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and there's another gift. And if I have all faith, oh, there's another gift. As to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, there's another gift. And if I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And you know the rest of it. You see, Paul is describing that love is the zenith. It's the centerpiece. It's the DNA. It's the, it's the lifeblood of the Christian because the Holy Spirit brings this kind of transformation. So this morning, in the two little verses that we found in Romans 12, 9 and 10, we are going to unpack those a little further, and we're going to talk about love, the agape way. We're going to talk about what transformation looks like and how these, this love is characterized in these two verses by Paul. And I would like to describe them in terms of continuums, one extreme or the other in each of the four continuums, and it's going to be an opportunity for each one of us to examine our loves and to see where we are on the continuum. The first one I want to talk about is love's integrity. In verse 9, Paul says, let love be genuine. The second one I want to talk about is love's morality. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Thirdly, we will discuss in verse 10 love's intimacy. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then finally, I want to talk about love's intensity. Outdo one another in showing honor. So let's begin with love's integrity. Let love be genuine. The word Paul uses is, is actually the word hypocritical with an un in front of it. Unhypocritical. Let love be like that. Let it be genuine. Let there be no phoniness, no counterfeit, no acting, no outward but not inward kind of essence of love. Let it be unhypocritical with integrity. Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love, it's translated, an unhypocritical love. And so this kind of love has no hidden agenda. This kind of love does not operate out of selfish motives. This kind of love does not pump its own tires in relationship. This kind of love, when agape love is the driving force in our hearts, it is without hypocrisy. John Murray says this. He says, if love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy is the epitome of vice, what a contradiction to ever bring them together. And so the first quality of love that is being examined is perhaps easy to understand but hard to put into practice. What do you do, for example, when you don't have love feelings in your heart for someone? What do you do when someone irritates you, when you find a person is conflictive and prickly and you can't even hardly have a conversation without some tensions surfacing? What do you do? How do you demonstrate an unhypocritical love? Some people would say, in response to that, that they would advocate that an unhypocritical love would say, be honest, tell them how you feel about them, and act accordingly. So tell them and treat them the way you feel. Why? Because it's unhypocritical then. It's hypocritical to feel one way and then treat them a different way. Well, I think that's a shallow understanding of what Paul's teaching here. I don't think it would be Paul's advice at all. I think what Paul is commending is saying, here's an opportunity, Christian, for you to do a heart check, to let your love be genuine. And if you look at your heart and you see that you don't have love for a certain person that is not an unconditional and agape kind of love for that individual, you then take it as a sign that your heart is out of sync with the love of God. And then you go to God, that deeper well that Jenny talked about, and you say, God, you need to mend my heart. You need to fill me up. You need to give me love that I don't have. And you renew my heart. And then once you've done that repentance and confession, then you go to that person and you step out in faith to treat them with that love, trusting in God's future grace to meet you at that very point of obedience when you step out and say, I'm going to love this person absolutely with the love of God. And God, in that moment of miraculous exchange, will exchange your intolerance and shallow love for his depth of love. Indeed, that's the way the Christian life is to be lived. That is not acting hypocritically, folks. That is acting in faith. Rick Warren says this, God teaches us to love by putting some unlovely people around us, and it takes no character to love who, those of you who are, those who are lovely and loving and lovable to you. It takes no character at all to do that. And so on this continuum that you have before you on the overhead, I want to ask you, which, where are you on that continuum? As you examine the relationships that are in your life and you, you examine your own heart in terms of love's integrity, where do you see? What, what relationships does the Holy Spirit bring to your mind? Where is it that you need to step out and act in faith, trusting in God's future grace, and be the loving person? that you need to be instead of self-serving. We move on to love's morality. And in this scripture, we, we see, just going back one, I think, love's morality. And um, 
we see Paul say, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This word abhor is a reference to people who actively hate what is good. Now, we've got to be careful here, okay? The word has this idea of people who actively hate what is good. This little preposition ahead of it, apple, means it refers to anything that is against what is good. Abhor anything that is against what is good. Stay away from any scheme, any, any situation that actively undermines the good. Stay clear of anything that is repulsive or disgusting or detestable or an enemy of the good. Stay away from that. But it does not say hate the people. It says hate the evil. Okay? That's the part you have to be really careful with. In the little book of Jude, near the end of the Bible, the author is talking about scoffers and mockers that will rise up at the end of the age, the last days we are living in. And he says that they will follow ungodly passions. Indeed, we see a rise now in our culture of those who openly scoff and mock at biblical values. And they talk about their own lusts and so on and desires. In verse 19 of Jude, calls them worldly people who cause divisions devoid of the Spirit. But then he says this, but you, church, you, he says, build yourselves up in your faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, what does that word mean, to keep yourselves in the love of God? The word keep there is, is literally meaning stand guard over. Stand guard over the love of God in you. Don't, don't let anything penetrate. Let no evil seep in to your heart. Stand guard over the love of God that nothing will compromise it. Back to Romans 12, 9 again. After saying abhorring what is evil, he says holding fast to what is good. And there again, another interesting word. The word hold fast is one Greek word, kala. It means glue. It's the word for glue. Be glued to what is good. It was used in various ways. It was in, used in medical language for the uniting of a wound, like stitching a, a wound. Bring these things together. Glue yourself to what is good. Metaphorically, one author says that symbolically it's the idea of being intimately connected in your soul, having a friend with good, being glued You've made friends in your soul with what is good and you're abhorring what is evil and you're standing guard against not letting any of it seep in to your heart. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things, Paul says. And so this aspect of love's morality is one that we can also gauge ourselves on. How consistently do you abhor what is evil and cling to what is good? We don't realize it. We don't realize it all the time. But every time we make a decision, there's often a social and a moral, moral consequence whenever evil is, is around. Whenever there's a decision made about evil, there is a social and a moral consequence. Paul, that's why he weaves the word evil into this whole scripture three times. We see it in verse 10, abhor what is evil. We see it in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. We see it in verse 21, do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, if we, if we fail to speak out against evil or stick up for someone facing an injustice, there's a social and a moral consequence. If we let down our guard, turn off our filter, and engage in gossip or slander, there is a moral and a social consequence. If we engage in an evil by browsing through social media and the internet with a careless, quiet a quest for excitement or fascination, we, we have often a social and a moral consequence. We can find ourselves loving evil instead of abhorring it and then not glued to the good. I confess that I get caught in that sometimes. 
on social media. I get caught in that. I'm not a big, I'm not a big Facebook user, but every so often when I have some downtime, I'll put on Facebook and see what my friends are up to. And then as I go into it, I'll, I'll watch this stream of videos that get sent to my account based on algorithms that are sent to me and not to you. you got other stuff sent to you. And I noticed one day a couple months ago that, that I, I was starting to get lots of fights sent, video fights sent to that video stream. And I think, I think the way it got in there was that I would, would watch some of the hockey highlights and I'd see the fights on the ice, the hockey, and I'd, I wanted, I'd want to know how that player would do against that player. I know you're seeing a terrible person up here, aren't you? And, and then I think what happened was the algorithms were all at work behind the scenes, and then the next thing I see, I see a, 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 a couple of fans in, in some football game going at it. And then the next thing I see a little while later is a street fight, road rage. and some, I'm, All of a sudden, one day, I realize as I'm scrolling through my videos, and why are you thinking that I'm such a fighting guy? <laughs> now, you may not relate to that. Pick your poison. Maybe there's something else. The point is there's nothing good in this. There's nothing good in those fights, right? And I started, had to sort of think myself through, well, Why? is my fascination with fight. What is this voyeuristic tendency to want to see others hammering on each other? It's not love being demonstrated. It's an evil root. How does it affect me? How does it affect you? How does it affect you through me? We generally do not think about the effect. Say you're watching television and you have dozens of decisions to make every time you open up Netflix or Prime or whatever you watch. Every time you turn it on, confession, I like to watch war documentaries. Hard to get into one of those without seeing some fighting going on. You cannot study human history without studying war. I want to understand, why is it that Russia and Ukraine are at odds right now? Why has the world map changed over time? That's just an interest in me. But how can I do that without letting some evil seep in? Well, I think you can. I think you can study you can understand, and you can say, God, put a guard at my heart that no evil will enter in, though I have to watch some awful stuff. You can do that. And then you can, you can decide when some of the awful stuff that you might see, is that is not needed. I don't need to watch that. I don't need to hear that. I don't, you see, you need to make the decision to guard your heart and not let the evil Come in. Now, like I said, the things that might snag me on a careless evening will not be the things that snag you. What is it where you might open the door and start to just like evil a bit instead of clinging to the good? So on the continuum that we have, love's morality, let the Holy Spirit do the searching in you and think about love's morality, where you place your love and is there anything that God shows up in your heart where, yeah, that is, un, that is not good, that is evil, and I'm, I'm interested sometimes. God help me. Let's move on and talk about love's intimacy. In verse 10, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. And I've heard you, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it said many times that the Greeks have four words for love. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, The Four Loves. If you're really interested in studying them, you can, you can look into that. <clears throat> the interesting thing about the four loves, <clears throat> just quickly, the word eros, from which we get erotic, was interesting that the Holy Spirit forbade Holy Scripture and the writers of Holy Scripture to use the word eros in the Holy Bible. Now, why was that? I was thinking one time, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, would have been a great example when to use the word eros, put it in there. It, it says, let the marriage bed be kept pure. Would have been a great time to have a holy eros in the marriage bed because eros is largely a sexual, passionate love the Greeks would use and talk about. But somehow that word had been soiled enough that the Holy Spirit did not want to use it in Holy Scripture. We look at the word as well, phileo, the Philadelphia, the, the city of brotherly love, friendship love. It's found about 20 times, 21 times in the New Testament. We see the word 
Agape, of course, over 300 times. This is the word you'll likely be reading if you open up the Bible and read in the New Testament about love. And then finally, there's this word storge, which has to do with an affection that comes in families. Family love especially, or affectionate. Family love, loyal family love. And the interesting thing about this scripture is, um, is that in chapter 12, verse 10, there is a, Paul's making up a new word, and he's taking phileo and storge, and he's putting them together. And the word is philostorgos. <laughs> and so Paul is saying, I can't find only one word to describe the kind of love that should be among Christians, so I'm going to give, I'm going to make a word up. And I'm going to ask you to have both friendship and family love as the glue in your relationships. And so that's what he did. It's not a, it's not a love that's sentimental. It's a deeply, deeply affectionate love, but it's based on, obviously, some common values and so on. He's saying, in brotherly love, love one another like family. And that's consistent with Jesus saying, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, you've already been taught by God how to love one another. And he uses the word phileo there. You've already been taught by God how to love one another. In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes in, he teaches you that love has to be the way you live. And so God intends that every Christian have people in their lives with which they are in deeply loving relationship, transparent, vulnerable, opening up, walking the deep roads together, the valleys and the mountains. God intends that every Christian is so glued in the close bond of friendship and family that they never walk alone. They never feel alone. This is the, the, the point of fellowship, of koinonia in the body of Christ. Everything that in you might want to run away from that is not of God. Everything in you that would want to run away from at least having a few people in your life by which you are able to really walk it out is not of God. God wants you pressing in without insecurities into those relationships where he'll lead you to be closer, vulnerable, talking it out, wrestling it through, praying for each other, and so on. I hope that's your experience. Because God, when he invited you into his family, did not just say, by the way, you and I will be at the table all by ourselves for the rest of, the, of eternity. No. It's not just a vertical love he's invited you into. It's a horizontal love. He said, you're going to be at the table with me, and you don't get to decide who else comes to the table. So learn to love, Paul says. And uh, so in this continuum, love's intimacy, where are you? And again, the Holy Spirit might bring a relationship or two to mind, but where are you? Do you have some, at least, in your life with whom you have an incredible family devotion of love to rather than this estrangement that can settle like a cold winter Winnipeg night upon relationships? Estrangement. Some of you maybe have had estrangement happen on relationships in the last two years. How is God asking you to warm that relationship up? How is he asking you to step back into it? And then finally, I want to talk about love's intensity. And that's from verse 10, the last part. Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. A very hard phrase to translate. Let me tell you about five different translations. Here's the New Living Translation. De take delight in honoring each other. Another one, in honor, prefer one another. Another one, excel in showing respect for each other. Um, Eugene Peterson's the uh, message. He says, practice playing second fiddle. <laughs> Another one, J.B. Phillips says, willingness to let other persons have the credit instead of you. Well, the point is that this word outdo is from pro and hegeomai, which means pro beforehand, and hegeomai means to lead, to lead, to, to model by leading. 
And the idea is that you go first, not to grab the attention and be selfish. You go first because you're going to be an example. You go first because you're going to put yourself out there and be possibly a target. You put yourself out there and you give the gift of second to somebody else. You go first. You show honor. You beat them to the punchline and saying, no, no, you're the one that deserves the credit here. This is the idea of the word. By humbling yourself and honoring another, you are being more of an example than you'll ever know. People are not inclined to open up to or get close to a person who always seems to be perfectly put together. People who are always full of confidence. People who are always putting their best foot forward, somehow appearing in the spotlight where all others are in the shadows. People don't incline toward to want to get to know those people. No, what people are inclined to is to get to know the one who stumbles just like you do, the one who fails or falls, who seldom gets it right, the kind of people who are quick to say, wow, I admire that in you. You have been an example in this area to me. I can relate to you because you don't just show the glory side of your life. You show the cracks, the flaws, the struggles, the wrestling. Believe me, that is where the glory is after all. It is in our weakness. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 12. Verse 8, he says, here, here we get into kind of Paul's prayer closet. We get a, a sneak peek, and he said, I pleaded with God. Three times I pleaded with God, take this weakness in the flesh away. We don't know what it was. Take it away, but God said, no, I'm not going to do that, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now, how did Paul respond to that? I love the way Jenny talked about those three evenings of prayer, bargaining with God. Paul responded to this answer to prayer by saying, Therefore, I will glory in my weakness so that the power of God might rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is not a natural lesson to learn. And so, where are you in this continuum of love's intensity where you can actually have a disrespecting and devaluing posture in your heart for somebody or where you can actually put yourself out there kind of like John the Baptist with Jesus, I must become less and he must become greater, where you honor someone, you go, you go out of your way to value them. How are you doing on that? <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon was riding through the countryside one day and he noticed a weather vane on the top of a farmhouse. And so he asked the driver of the horse and buggy to stop and he went up to the door, knocked on the door, and he talked to the farmer and he asked the farmer, why, why would you put uh, something on your weather vane that presents God as not always loving, changing like the wind? That's not the love of God, Charles Spurgeon said to this farmer. And, and the farmer responded by saying, no, sir, you get it all wrong. You don't understand me. He said, he said, I put it up there because regardless of which way the wind is blowing, God's love is constant. No matter which way the wind blows, God's love is constant. And that's the kind of love he wants in us. That's the kind of love he wants to plant in our hearts for one another, for the world around us, for the hardest to love, and so on. If you would just let the love of God fill your inner being with Jesus Christ's presence and the Holy Spirit enabling you to, to come to higher depths, higher heights of love than you could ever imagine, you'd be possible in you. If you could see that, that God's love has more for you to give to others, then you would be able to love with an unhypocritical love. You would be able to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. You would be able to have a loyalty and affection, even for those people in your life that you differ with. You would be able to honor others above yourself even. When you see God's agape love as the source of your loves, you will discover that being the right person is more important than finding the right people to hang out with. You know, I want to apply that to everybody at whatever station in life you're in. For those of you 
who are unmarried and wanting to be married. Being the right person is more important than you finding the right person. For those of you who are married, I want to tell you, being the right person is more important than you trying to get your spouse to be the right person. I want to say to you that are isolated and feeling very lonely through these last years especially, being the right person is fundamental for you to find the right people that God wants you to walk with in love. And I want us to conclude our morning today with some prayer. And I would like us to pray together. I'd like to pray for you. And I want to shape this prayer in, in, the, in, a, in a certain way. Because what, what we need to do as we come to this time of prayer is completely believe that God is listening to your prayer and my prayer. Eugene Peterson said of the early church that the distinctive feature of the early Christian church was the certainty that when they prayed, they were being heard by God, that God was listening, and it gave them this sense of dignity that the Almighty was listening to me. And So as we conclude our service today, I want us to go to prayer. I want to pray for you and me, but I want us to have this sense of really knowing that God is listening. The other thing that I really liked about the way Eugene Peterson, he drew my attention to the very first words of the book of Revelation. And you'll know that in the book of Revelation when John the Apostle, who by the way uses the word agape more than any other author in the New Testament, John the Apostle who was the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, John the Apostle who, who leaned back at the Last Supper and, and asked Jesus questions that none of the other disciples even heard. John the Apostle ended his days on an island in Patmos, being persecuted as a Christian. We don't know how many people were on the island with him, how many Christians were there. He was not the only Christian on the island. But John says this, as, he, as he's going to be given by the Holy Spirit, this last revelation of future things. He says, I was, in, I was on Patmos, and I was in the Spirit. You have your Patmos, no question. You have the island that God has assigned to you for now. It is a place of loneliness, maybe because of the pandemic you've been isolated. Here we are sitting in this room, in this building, in, in cohorts of 25, with masks on, social distancing. Here we are, isolated from each other. Oh, how we pray for God to bring an end to this pandemic, to bring an end to the masks and the distancing and the, the fear and all that's going on. But we need to remember that though we have our Patmos Island, and it's different for every one of us perhaps, we can be in the Spirit. That's where prayer takes place. You see, real prayer takes place when you bring your Patmos experience into the realm of the Holy Spirit and you trust God that in that exile, in that place of abandonment, apparently, in that place of loneliness, whatever it is for you, where you're not experiencing the horizontal love of God with other believers, God can meet you there. That's what I want to pray about as we conclude our service. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me now, and following my time with you in prayer, we'll conclude our service. Let's pray. Father, our God, we just thank you for that incredible love. Oh, what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. What an incredible privilege. And as your children, we come, oh, Father, to to your throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. We come because we're, we're weak, we're needy. And Lord God, we, we all have our Patmos experience of, of being isolated, of being afraid, of opening up, of being lonely. And this pandemic has only underlined that and only exacerbated and made that worse. And God, we just pray for an end to this pandemic. And we pray for restrictions to be loosened soon. We pray for things to open up, oh God. 
But would you give us wisdom, O Lord, that in the middle of this Patmos, to, in the middle of this being in exile, to still be in the Spirit and to live our lives in love, to examine our hearts in, in these four different continuums of Romans 12, 9, and 10, and to, to bring our lives to you and to bring those relationships to you that are perhaps the ones you most want us to focus on, God, we pray. Show us how to be genuine. Correct our hearts when we, don't, when we don't have the kind of love you have in our hearts. Help us to hate what you hate, God. Hating what is evil, whatever form it takes. And glue us back together where we've come apart. Oh God, whether that's in families or in friendships, glue us back together where we have come apart. May we love everything that is good and lovely and praiseworthy. Show us how to be true friends and family. Even as families all have their differences, Lord, let us in the midst of differences love. Father, show us how to be humble, to outdo one another in showing respect and honor. Even if it means, even if it means putting ourselves last and not getting noticed and not being heard and not having the last word, give us grace to humble ourselves and outdo one another in showing honor just as you showed us, Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Lord God, help us to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are. Thank you, sovereign Lord, for all that you're doing, and we'll trust you. We'll trust you on this island of Patmos. We'll trust you in this place of exile. And we'll continue to press into being in the Spirit, in prayer. And we believe you're listening right now, sovereign God, to every individual heart prayer that is going up to you right now. Interceding Jesus, thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, thank you for formulating the grumbling and groanings and the things that are hard to put into words. Thank you, God. Receive our praise. Receive our love. And give us, fill us up, Lord, in our love tanks with the agape that only you can give. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you. Go in peace.